0: Okay, here we are.
1: Here we are. Welcome, Welcome back. back. Science Welcome in between. Back. Science in between. This is Ollie and this is Scott. Hey, so I wanted to like tell you about I think I texted you this about about this a couple of days ago about the uh New York Times article about the podcast bros. Mm, you you <laughs> did
0: you did tell me about it.
1: Yes. Yes. And I went, I've been thinking a lot about this cuz what there's an article the article was talking about how like there's a certain, you know, um people are bristling at podcast bros, bros who guys who start podcasts and just go and wax poetic. And I was like, at first I kind of felt like, you know, I myself, you know, felt a little, I don't know, odd being a, a podcaster, you know, I guess we're yeah. podcasters, you know, you and I, but I don't think we fall into that bro category, you know?
0: Uh, well, I mean, certainly we like to hope not, or I I think we both like to hope not, but I don't know what I, I mean. I can yeah, I, guess, I can I guess, get the the potential for toxic toxic masculinity sort of bros,
1: right? And um, I think that's the example that they're doing the Joe Rogan kind of thing. And I I don't think that's us. I think we're kind of more in the you know Malcolm Gladwell, you know Adam Grant. I don't think those guys are podcast bros, right? I don't think those guys are podcast. No, bro.
0: they're not podcast bros exactly, but. I don't. I'm. I'm uncomfortable putting us in that category too, because those people like me podcasts that are super refined and and edited right. down and production high production value. This I, I'm I talking about like that. But the, we're yeah. not high production value. You
1: sure? Are um, you sure?
0: <laughs> <I'm> pretty sure, <laughs> pretty sure.
1: So I. I think I think what I feel more comfortable with is calling us podcast dads. How about that?
0: Oh, there you go. Well, yeah. it's it's certainly on the nose. It's yeah. yeah. Yeah, podcast dads. Yeah. You know? yeah, have you
1: have you seen the, the, the dumb dads podcast? It shows up no. on my Instagram all the time. Oh, those guys are funny. Dumb, the Dumb Dads Podcast. There's two guys who are just like, yeah, they're just making their way through the world as dads and not doing well not doing well. Not doing well at all. It's like it is it is ha funny.
0: Okay. Ha ha funny. But only if you're a dad.
1: I think people can find you know <laughs> they can find value in it. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, but, but, but we're not here to uh, to promote the podcast of other no. podcast dads. No. <laughs> and certainly not podcast bros. No.
1: Oh, no. I, I can honestly you, say I've never listened. Even though you list- did
0: throw one name in there. so we'll-
1: Right. I have never listened to a single episode of that dude. Not one. No. Not no. one. Mm, there you go. Huh? There you go. I think yeah. that's that's something.
0: <laughs> it, it is something. I can argue with that. <laughs> Deep thoughts from Oliver. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's something.
1: My, my work is done something. here. <laughs> I'm very something. philosophical today.
0: Yeah. I always keep the pens in the left side of my drawer so I can grab them easier with my right hand. That's something. <laughs> that's something. Yeah. Write that one down.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's great. All and they come here for all of this. This knowledge and <laughs> banter. <laughs>
0: already we've lost listeners
1: i could hear it i could hear them shutting off <laughs> hanging <laughs>
0: hanging up click click like back in the old days when you could set the receiver down
1: yeah it's like click <sighs> all right so so what are we talking about today scott
0: oh boy what are we talking about today ollie today we're gonna return to culturally relevant teaching um so we we started that and started talking about it last week but it's you know like many of the things we talk about it's it's uh Got a it's a problem without a ceiling, as as right. uh, they say, right? Who's this was they? They say that. Well, in this case, we're talking about Jessica Thompson, friend of the show. Jessica Thompson at the University is, of Washington.
1: Is she a friend? Is she a friend of the show?
0: Uh, no, I doubt it. Oh, okay. but that's, she's a but you actually a, know her. You she's know, she's a her. friend of mine. So right. that's I close. Know. That's right. sort of like a friend of the show. Um, so yeah, she has a paper about that problems without ceilings. But I think the point is that. We could talk about culturally relevant pedagogy a lot and not get to all the things that we could talk about in terms of culturally relevant pedagogy. And and we're going to we're taking a very big umbrella when we right. talk about that, just to be clear. And you can listen to last week's episode if you want to know yeah, and some it, more it, basics about
1: it. a lot of this conversation came from the fact that um, our state just beyond, you know, releasing these new science standards for uh schools they also released new competencies around crc okay. which is culturally responsive and sustaining education that's the uh specific language they are using in the state regarding these and they're, you know we went through them last week and they're um yeah they're all encompassing they're um in a lot of Cases like really, they're going to be really hard to measure and really hard to observe for our teacher candidates. But um, I appreciate um, I appreciate the goals. I I appreciate that that is a the the motivations behind the folks are doing it. You know, because I think that's uh, it's needed. It's certainly needed. But I think this week we wanted to kind of build on that and talk about specifically what that looks like. In practice and science classrooms, like what does that mean for us? And, and we're actually in the middle of um, planning sessions around, you know, science, culturally responsive stuff in science um, for our uh, intermediate units, our professional development we're doing across the state. And so that's coming up uh, like in the next week or two. And so, you know, these two things kind of co, uh, you know, coincide, intersect.
0: Yeah, Yeah. they're connected. Yeah. Um. So. So what we we're going to do today is. So one of the other members of the of the team that's doing this work here in Pennsylvania is Pete Lacona, who's faculty at Elizabethtown in science education, um, and also a Penn State grad. Um, and also
1: one of your doc students. He was a doc student too, right? Um.
0: I was on his committee. So. But yeah, I worked with Pete while he was here. He worked on projects with me. Um. So yeah, we have a we have a history together. Um. And. And he's fantastic. He is interested in second language learning specifically in translanguaging, um, which is sort of a um a different way of characterizing how kids whose first language is not English work in classrooms um to sort of work between uh their their home language or the language from their home. Um, not, in a, not like home country though. That's part of it too, but the language that they speak in their homes and the language that they speak in schools and how they, how they sort of negotiate that. So, um, yeah. And, and, uh, so he was sort of the lead on this, on this set of, right. of, um, of sessions that are happening next week. So, and he's done some work,
1: uh, in, is it Puerto Rico? Where has he done work? Like he, he has gone, abroad yeah, that, and i right, think that's a good
0: question i i i'm not remembering off the top of my head either but i thought i thought it was mexico but maybe it wasn't but yeah po- spanish-speaking country he's, he's right. a spanish speaker um and uh yeah so i mean his his focus is largely on ling- linguistics yep. uh components of of sort of diversity and how that plays out in terms of culturally relevant teaching but he has a broad knowledge of of culture, what he describes as culturally and linguistically responsive teaching, right? So he, he puts in linguistic there because of his interests. And I think because it's a real, um, it's, it's a real and meaningful part of, of what it means to be culturally responsive.
1: Absolutely. And what he did, um, which I think is novel and we're sharing his work, um, not only in the presentations that we're doing and the workshops we're doing, but also in this podcast. So I think we definitely have to give him a shout out because what he did was he looked at a bunch of different you know pedagogies different you know papers some of it's like pretty seminal work and he kind of synthesized down to like five what he saw as key practices around asset asset based pedagogies you know and and if you've listened to our episodes you're going to see a lot of this is stuff that like we you know it's part of the dna of this of this podcast yeah. you know and yeah, yeah. So number one of the asset pod- pedagogies that he's calling culturally and linguistically responsive teaching is learning about students, learning about their culture, learning about their interests, learning about their backgrounds, learning about the students you work with. And that's, you know, absolutely part of the DNA of our show is like relational work is what we do. And you got to know your students in order to be able to work with them. Yeah. And so that, that, and you know, how you do that. And we talked a little bit about that, about this last week about how Um, You know, my my daughter's second grade teacher rode her bike around neighborhoods and gave books to, you know, there's lots of ways to do this. But, you know, it's really critical that you have an idea, not you, you know, teachers have an idea of this, of the students are working with and what, where they're coming from. And, and, and viewing that as an asset to their classroom rather than as a deficit that they have to overcome. And so it's not like we're trying to tamp that stuff down. Like my dad, so my dad was a, my dad was born in Italy and came to America and was like four or five. Um, Didn't speak a lick of the language. And so you know, they trained it out of him, right. They held him back and trained it out of him. And just like, and then when he was an adult, he, he could understand it, but he couldn't really speak much of it, you mm-hmm. know? So um as a, you know, a first generation American, you know, I, I'm a little, you know, I'm a little sad that that was something that like, why I grew up in a, you know, an Italian house, you know, Italian, Italian wasn't something we spoke at home,
0: you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think this – well, a couple things. One is, yeah, I have a similar story about my grandfather, not linguistically, but interestingly enough, this is a hand in this thing, which I don't – they certainly don't do anymore. But my grandfather was left-handed, but at, at that time, that was seen as an aberration. And so he he would, literally had to tie his hand behind his back so that they would force him to write with his right hand, right? So the kinds of things that we've done uh, historically to um, try and inculturate people in, in our schools is really – yeah not, not awesome <laughs> no not not <laughs> not, aw- not awesome <laughs> um but i think you know to your point about um you know learning about students and what that means it, you know relationships when we talk about it being relational work part of the important thing to understand about what that means is that there isn't a there isn't a formula for that right there isn't a way to b- be in relationship with other people um beyond broad strokes, like caring about them, knowing who they are. But, you know, if you do that by riding your bike around the neighborhood and delivering books to your kids, or if you do that through, you know, incidental conversations with your kids over, you know, over the semester where you try to really get to know kids or going to their events after school or whatever it is, like the point of this is learning about your students is it should, just as it is in any relationship is key. Like you need to right. know things about the people that you want to be in relationship with because knowing things about them is one of the ways that you indicate that you care, right? Is, is, you know, stuff about them and you can ask them about those things that they care about. So um, that's just, it's just good um, foundational relational work. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. And it's like just, it's, it's paying attention and being aware and, you know, and putting forth the effort and time because this is, this is part of the planning process. Like, it's not just like about like sitting down and writing lesson plans or re- reading. You know, for re- like what's coming next in 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 the unit or whatever. This is part of the planning process. Yeah. Plan like building time in to be aware of the stuff that the students are into, whether the stuff that their students are, you know, you know, what's what's in their backpack, what's on their hat, what kind of like whatever. You know, you have to pay attention to all of it, and it's and all, all of that adds value to your classroom
0: right yeah and that and that builds to the second one he talks about which is drawing on students prior knowledge funds of knowledge and prior experience to promote learning so I mean this is this is sort of the obvious next step is once you know things about your students you can take advantage of that in class and ask them to bring in their own assets um as they're doing their own thinking in class so um it it becomes a natural extension to say well I now know things about people so I can ask them um, you know, if, if you've got a kid that runs a bodega, you could, whose family runs a bodega, then you can ask them questions about, you know, stocking or, you know, purchasing or other things. If they have got a kid that works on a farm, you can ask them things about raising animals. Right. So, um, but also just recognizing that no matter what, it's not, the teacher asking these questions per se, but it is recognizing that when kids are going to bring their own things to the table, you want to respect that and see that as a contribution to the classroom rather than um, a misconception that needs to be fixed.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, I was at a conference. I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, I saw Arthur Ozencraft speak, and he's a, you know, yep big deal in science education. And, you know, he was there promoting one of his books or whatever. And so I I didn't get a whole lot out of the session because I, I typically bristle at kind of like those promotional tour things. But the one thing he did say that like has resonated with me, and this is like 15, 20 years later is that there are no common experiences that we can draw upon in our classrooms. Like there are very few. We can create them in our classrooms or, we we can like try to figure out what the prior experiences of our students are and you know really but just to, to say well you know because my students come from this area i can do this mm-hmm. now there's no, no common experiences that we can rely on. So you have to get to know them, you know, and you have to right. figure out what those prior experiences are. So, cause like you could say something like, Oh, well, you know, when you go to the beach in the summer, no, you can't say that because like not everybody goes to the beach in the summer, yeah. you know, or like, yeah. Hey, you know, at Christmas time, when you get this, no, can't do that either. yeah, You know, cause there are no yeah. prior, no common experiences that we in this society can draw upon.
0: <clears throat> right. And that, you know, that is also the reason that you provide the experiences that you do in your classroom, because that does provide a common ground for the students that are there to have a conversation. But the point of that common ground is to be a venue where your students bring their own experiences to bear. So that's what makes it a rich conversation is you you do something like the happy sad ball and you drop it. Everybody has seen that now they know what that looks like they can talk about it but the way that they talk about it and what they bring to that conversation is based on their own experience and like you say that 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 experience is unique to us in a very deep and profound way not just in the like what kind of house do you live in where do you live how do you summer what is your religion but but really deeply like everybody's experience is unique um on a on a fundamental level and um
1: that's awfully yeah. phenomenological right there <laughs> yeah thanks yeah we're all we're all having our own individual experiences as we navigate life
0: right, and it but it's true, I mean even the people that you are closest with, and you know your your closest family members um have you have different sets of experiences yeah. and and there's just no there's no way around that like you can't fix that and it's not a problem right in the same way that a misconception is the bad way to think about a student's idea that isn't the same as the quote unquote normative science idea like if you see that as a deficit or as a disadvantage or not normal that's where you get into problems what you want to do is you know, this is the fundamental value of diversity when we talk about it isn't like what percentage of your kids are different identified group, but what kind of experiences to to the group of kids that you have bring that, that create this ecology of interesting ideas that allow you to advance your classroom conversation.
1: Yeah. It's interesting when you're saying that, like, uh, even people who are living in the same house may have different experiences. Like, you know, when you think about, like, you know, I have two brothers, my wife has two sisters, you know, that we cannot be more dissimilar from each other, right? right? I mean, we grew up in the same house, but outside of that, you know,
0: right and And that doesn't mean you don't have commonalities with them because you do sure. and but you have commonalities with lots of other people, and there may be people that you have much more in common with in terms of experience and orientation of the world than your brothers and sisters right so that's that's the weird thing is it's you know it's not as simple as as family either, so yeah, yeah. it's that yeah. yeah. All yeah. right, so it's, you're you're the odd one now. You get sure. to do the number uh, three.
1: Yeah, maintaining high expectations for students, for all yeah. students. Yeah. You know, I think that's that's something that uh, deserves to be you know constantly reminded to teachers is that you know we need to have high expectations for all of the students we work with. You mm-hmm. know, now that doesn't necessarily mean that um we have the same expectations for everybody. Right. That's
0: key. you know
1: that is key. You know, high expectations doesn't necessarily mean that we, we have the same high expectations for, for everyone. Um, but what we want to do is to try to, you know, gauge where students are and what we can get from them. Mm-hmm. And push them to to where we think we can get them. Um, and that is, again, coming to – that's that's the important part with, like, all these things are interconnected, right? You got to know your students. You got to know their prior experiences. You got to know what they're, what they're coming into our classrooms with. And I think that gives you a better idea of where we can, like, really push the students to be able to achieve. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, maybe, you know, student A is going to do one thing and student B is going to do another. But for both of those students, they might be high expectations for that you know, know, um, or it should be, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, the point of, you know, high expectations doesn't mean the same expectations. I think that can be tricky because we tend to think of it as, oh, well, high expectations means everybody gets an A. Right. Um, And A means the same thing for all kids, right? You, you get 95% or higher of the multiple choice questions on the test that I gave you. Like that's an A. Um, And I think that idea of, No, what we're looking for largely, I think what we're talking about is growth and, and, um, like how much did you learn? Um, but there are lots of ways to think about that. I mean, certainly special education is, is the most obvious place where you make modifications, but thinking about like your classroom being a place where, your goal is for kids to improve their understanding, and by improving their understanding then they're they're you're having high expectations for them you're not just letting them off and saying, "Oh, that kid like he doesn't get it, we'll just let him yeah. slide let um, him pass
1: let, yeah. let him pass yeah exactly
0: so i think I think that it, it is a trickier thing because high expectations gets manifested in a particular way, and again yep. this this has to do with theories of learning again for at least for me, but but that idea that like you can have high expectations without having everybody have the same expectation is really important.
1: Yeah. Well I mean I think it, it, where like when we see th- sports I think you know not not that we always you know have to have sports analogies but when I when we see somebody who's like you know running at different speeds or swimming at different speeds or I mean it's just Uh, to me, like my, my daughter was a swimmer. And so, you know, when she was able to shave like, I don't know, seconds off her, you know, her race or whatever, that's an achievement. Now she, you know, was, was she the best swimmer? Probably not, but that was a growth experience for her, you know? And so sometimes we see that more logically in, you know, in other things than we can in a classroom setting, right? Like, like for my, for my daughter, is she going to necessarily run, you know, swim the race as fast as somebody else. No, but is she going to be able to improve her her times and get the best that she can be? That's what we're going for, right? I mean, that's right. the goal, you know. And and so having expectations, having high expectations for students doesn't necessarily mean ha- having the same expectations. Right. I think. Yeah, and
0: and to build on, I mean, I, I hate to use a second sports analogy, but but fantasy <laughs> Here football we are. guy. Football.
1: Pot, podcast bro, yeah, right here. <laughs>
0: um, but you know if it, you're a fantasy football guy, um, yeah, a, little bit, so, a little bit. so here's the thing, right? Do you evaluate all players that play football on the same stats? Of course not. That's a ridiculous way to do it. Like running backs, you don't, you don't, you don't measure the quality of a running back based on the number of tackles they've made because they don't make any tackles. So if that's the criteria you use, then, then they get a very low score, right? So, so the idea of thinking about like, if your classroom is like, you know, maybe not like a football team because there's lots of reasons why that might be troubling, (laughs) but, but the idea that. The players on your team in your classroom have different skills and attributes, and your job is to help them do the best with what they have um, and and use those the criteria that are relevant to them as a way to evaluate their, their uh, ability, capacity and contribution. So this idea of like, Oh, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to judge every football player on the field by the number of passes they've completed. Well, right. that that's a crazy way of doing it, right? Because there are a lot of people who are going to fail in that system. So, um, so thinking about like, how do you diversify the way you, you evaluate the people um, in your classroom for success and and achievement. I think is really important,
1: and that's where I, for me, I think that's where like UDL stuff comes in, universal design for learning. Is that like you know we can get students to demonstrate their understanding in multiple ways, right? And when we you know open up those opportunities, that sometimes we get, we're going to be able to get you know we're going to be able to get one student to achieve something that maybe another student can't, right? Never. Yeah. And I think when you open up those opportunities and create more diversity in the classroom in terms of how students learn and how students demonstrate the, how they learn I think that's where we get you know more opportunities for students you know and that's really where what, what we're trying for right at least that's what yeah. I'm trying for you know Yeah
0: you you want to provide opportunities for for um kids kids to be successful that's important and so um, but but again if you have only one definition of success it's very um, hard for for a kid's to feel successful, because only a certain group of kids are ever really going to feel successful. But if you have a, a more diverse notion of what success is, look at that. Suddenly, lots of kids can be a success in your classroom, and it doesn't have to be just number of words memorized. Um, it's,
1: it's like that cartoon. Have you seen that cartoon where it's like, uh, you know, a bunch of animals standing by a tree and that's like, okay, whoever can climb to the top of the tree gets right. the A and like, like yeah. one's like a, like a snake and one's like a giraffe and, you know, yeah. on, only like, you know, like, I don't know, like the ape is going to be able to climb the tree or something that right. all the animals are like, what? what am I going to do here? You know? Yeah. Like,
0: the rhinoceros. The rhinoceros. No, me, not so you know, much. Not uh, make
1: it. Yeah. The, the goldfish. No, nah, not so much.
0: No, not so much. But, yeah.
1: I'd like to see a goldfish try to climb a tree, though. I'd be in for that. That's my profound statement got, for today. I got, I got nothing on that.
0: I don't know. I don't like that was the most dad podcast thing you could have said in this whole dad podcast thing. Yeah, that we're doing uh, here.
1: I'm leaning in. I'm leaning in. All right, That's, I'm here for that. Okay. <laughs> well,
0: this seems like an appropriate transition to number four, which is about creating a safe space. Mm-hmm. And a community of learners where all feel safe to participate. So I'm gonna add a little tweak to this because um we just had a fantastic uh, scholar here um visiting at Penn State and and uh she did a a talk in a workshop and her name's Freemapur Khashad. I'll I'll I will i i do not know, Korsh, Korshid, Korshid, maybe Korshid. Okay. I'll put I'll put her um her link in the in the show notes. But one of the things that she was here to talk to us about, um, about equity pedagogy and asset based pedagogy. And, and she has a healing focus, um, to her work, which is fascinating and really cool. But one of the things that, that she talked about, um, was the idea of a brave space rather than a safe space. And I really mm. like this idea. Um, the reason I like it and the reason she talked about it is she said, look, there's never going to be a, a, a space that is safe for everyone in the space it just can't be so when you make the safe when you make the space safe for some people it almost by definition makes it unsafe for others and so there there is this sense of um how do you create a brave space where people can engage where your ideas are are considered and thought through and maybe hammered on by other people in a positive way right but but the ideas where people can feel brave and courageous um, to to say their ideas and feel like it's going to be okay to have a conversation about them. So I, I agree with this one, but I but I just wanted to put that little tweak in there um, no, because I, I think I get, it's a nice one.
1: Yeah, I'm on board with that because on our campus we've um, we've been holding these series of courageous conversations. You know where you know we're right. just trying to create a forum to like discuss things because I think that that idea of safety is like okay because some people. Are like well i don't want to be challenged right and right, that's right. because they see being challenged as being unsafe right. and i think you know learning environments by definition means that we challenge our beliefs or our understandings because the only times we learn is when we challenge you know our 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 preconceived ideas right you know um and so um, you know i i think that it's it's Creating a safe space means, at least to me, that it's free from judgment, right? That, to me, is, like, one of the things.
0: Well, but is Uh, it really? I mean, based Uh, on what you just said, is it really Uh, free from judgment? It's free from a particular kind of judgment. judgment, Right. Um, And I think that one of the key pieces of that is, you know, and you hear this version of it a lot, which is, like, you know, you can... You can um, attack ideas or you can question ideas, but not people, people right? right? The idea is, um, you know, no no ad hominem attacks, no no saying that's a dumb idea because it comes from you, right? But like the whole idea of like the, the way a, a community's ideas get better is if people share their ideas and then they're examined by the community for their quality um, and the ones that are good, we keep and the ones that aren't good, we get rid of. And good, you know, that what means good shifts by different communities and in different domain areas or whatever. But, but that idea that what you want is more ideas, right, in the space. Well, the whole point of that is to get them out there so you can judge them, but you don't want to judge the people for their ideas because then nobody wants to contribute their ideas because they're like, oh, well, if I have an idea. And it's bad, quote unquote bad, then I'm bad. And that you have to break that connection where the idea is not you and you are not the idea. The idea is just something that you're contributing to the community for the good of everyone.
1: Yeah. What what's I, this is going to be an aside, but one of the things on, on my rape, my professors thing, you know, that's still out there. Uh, 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 this goes back like maybe like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. One of the students wrote, wrote, you know, I shared my opinion and he disagreed with me. And so that from that point on, I didn't talk. And I'm like, mm. hold, hold on. Like I, that's, that's the goal of a classroom is to, you know, if you're going to share an idea and I don't agree with you and I'm going to like call you out or ask you for more evidence, you know, I am. I'm, I'm certain I didn't put down the student. I'm certain yeah. that. Sure. But she felt like so connected with her ideas. And I'm. I'm saying she. I don't know. It could be. Yeah. A he. But mo I. The. But you know. Yeah.
0: Well, I think this brings up a, a a tricky balance that we have, right? Which is, like, as teachers, whether it's in higher ed or whether it's in K twelve, you are by definition, in a position of power relative to your students. And so one of the, you know, and we talk about this, I'm sure you talk about this with your students too, constantly with our pre-service teachers is, you know, when kids share their ideas, how do you non-judgmentally hear their idea and, you know, keep it alive and in the community until there's some reason why we dispose of it that we decide like there's not evidence for it, right? And that is incredibly difficult. difficult. Right, right. And just, you know, nonverbal communications is is one of the ways that that happens. You know, like you can't see my face, but I'm sort of like tilting my head and like squinting when I like eh, yeah. raising my shoulders like, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll, yeah. Like, yes. But. Right. Right. Uh, you're really close. Right. Yeah. And so that idea of like, how do you get yourself as much out of that, out of the judgment making process? So that the judgment is made by ideally the students or almost entirely by the students with your guidance, but once you start making a judgment, it does it it can be bad, right? And right. we all know this, right?
1: Oh, look, I'm I'm owning the the rate my professor thing. Like I I'm certain that the student yeah, yeah, felt yeah. felt like like I judged or I put her down, uh, you know, and and I have to own that, right? So. I mean, you know, we're all on this journey. We're all trying to get, become the best teachers we can be. Um, And so, you know, I think for me, my tell is my face. My I cannot control my – most of my emotion is con- controlled from my face. And so when I am like confused, angry, sullen, you know, sad, whatever, you know, and I'm certain that that student read something on my face that was just like, eh, yeah you know yeah. and i i mean so i absolutely i think creating a safe space for in our classroom or, or a brave space in the classroom is is something like anything that requires work and intention and practice and like it's something that we have to like you know go in and not just say, okay, I'm going to plan to be brave today. I'm going to plan to create a safe space today. But you have to go in with like clear ideas of what that's going to look like and things that are not. And you're also going to have to talk a little bit about the, some of the norms that happen in the classroom and and like really be explicit that, okay, this means that we're going to challenge each other's ideas. What? And then, you know, really spell out that, you know, we're, we're not going to attack people. We're attacking ideas. We're going to discuss them. And we're mm-hmm. going to discuss them and bring evidence to bear on that. And- was I as adept at that maybe ten years ago that I would be today? I don't know. You know. Well, and it hope be, it's that- not
0: a criticism of you, right? I mean, it's sure. the nature—it's the nature of this kind of work that no matter how good you are at it, you're always, always. gonna—you're yeah. always gonna hurt people's feelings e- e- without intent. But, you know, what you have to understand is, you know, this is one of those things where it's like, oh, well, I don't want to do that. So I'll just go back to the old way of teaching. Well, the old way of teaching, you were hurting lots of people's feelings yeah. all the time. You just didn't know because you didn't talk to them. And so uh, everybody in the class may have felt entirely alienated to, to the class. But you have no way of knowing because you're just up there running through your power. Yeah. It's like, this isn't this great. And everyone's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this Death is March. great. Yeah. Death
1: marks with Fun Sauce.
0: Death March with Fun Sauce. So, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, this is no criticism of you. This is the nature of of doing responsive teaching is that sometimes you're going to, you know, again, if we take it back to relational work, no matter how good your relationship is with your best friend or your partner or whoever it is that you want to choose as your best your best relationship, it's not like every day is perfect and you never screw up. You never forget something that was important to them or ask them a question that makes them frustrated or angry or disappointed or whatever, right? Like there, there's no such thing as a perfect relationship in the same way you can't have a perfect relationship with all the students in your class. So your your goal is to maximize that so that they feel like it's a place that they are comfortable in. And, you know, that one other thing is, you know, we talk a lot about Like, how do you set this stuff up in your classroom? And, you know, you were talking about being really explicit about it. And I think that's important, but I think it's also really important to recognize that being explicit is... Not even half the battle. Right. Like what really makes it the kind of space that it is, is all the little decisions you make day to day. Right. How you treat a kid's idea when they bring it up. So you can say, look, this is a safe space. We're all going to share ideas and we're not going to be critical of them. We're really just going to bring them out so we can examine them against the evidence. But as soon as you do something that's counter to that. That rule doesn't mean anything anymore. It's like, well, okay, so that rule is not really in place, at least for the teacher. Maybe it is for me, but it's not for the teacher. And so so this idea of like you have to build norms over time. This is why change in classrooms is so hard is because it takes a long time to rebuild a sense of what what is this classroom about? What what is normal here? Um, And it gets built up of all the little tiny moments that happen every day, not by the rules that you put on the board.
1: Yeah. And I, I think modeling behavior, you know, like embracing and modeling behavior sure. is so, so critical for this work, yep. you know, because like, like you said, as soon as you, you know, do something that, you know, doesn't model that behavior, it's just, it right. it, it, it takes a lot more work to get it back, to try to get it back. And, you know, yeah. Well, so I, think,
0: mo- I think that's the point is that you are constantly modeling, right? I agree with you. No matter what you, what, whether you realize this or not, as a teacher, you're constantly modeling what this classroom is and what what it means to be a member of this community. So just be aware of that because it it's powerful.
1: And it's also so friggin' intimidating, right? It's yeah. like it's like every decision that you make you have to like think about from multiple perspectives. And it's right. like Yeah, that's the that's the hard
0: hard part. Well all right, if, so- if only all the people in power would do more of that, right? Yeah. And and be conscious of the power that they have and and make decisions that aren't based just on their own self-interest.
1: Amen. All right, so last okay. one is valuing cultural and linguistic diversity, framing cultural and linguistic diversity as an asset.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, I think in many ways that's sort of just a summary of the other ones uh yeah. in some ways, right? I mean, it's saying not only do you have to see and know these things, but but again, you have to build up a norm in class that those things are valued, right? That that if you can say something in Spanish and you can't say it in English, then say it in Spanish um, because we want you to be able to share your ideas, right? And so, yeah, does that make it harder on the teacher sometimes? Sure. But that's why yeah. you're there is for it to be a little harder for you and a little easier for your kids.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that... Kind of goes back to the 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 Brian Brown science in the city stuff, right? Is that you know, like where where we start to use the you know the normative science language? I think that part is is pretty critical in the the learning cycle because if we put that stuff up front, and, and like I'll go, okay, here's all the language you have to learn, that is going to by nature, like push some kids away or say, Hey, your participation in this is limited because unless you can use this terminology, then you can't be a full participant in this classroom. And that is the exact thing we want to avoid. Right. We want to be able to like say, okay, you know, bring, bring your language, bring your ideas and your descriptions of things um, into this. And then we'll we'll work out the language later on, you know? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Right, that's the that's the fundamental message from a friend of the show, Brian Brown's book, um, you know, Science in the City, and we've talked about that. We have a book club about that, and so if you're interested in that, you can hear more there. But, but yeah, that idea of like first you you well, allow kids to explain things using their own practices, their own discourse. How do they talk? What what language do they use? And then provide science language down the road. And then, you know, he he also talks about giving them time to practice using that language, right? Because um, that's important too, because, yep. you know, you've got to connect these concepts that you've developed to this new word that means that thing. And you do that through practice. Practice. We're talking about practice.
1: Talking about practice.
0: Uh,
1: I mean, I... I just think about those teachers who start with you know the the big book of you know definitions hey here's all the vocabulary we're going to and that's you know or the word wall right that was a big thing with yeah. you know you know uh back in the learning focused schools days this was a you know a right. a movement about like 10 15 years ago or even longer at this point well that like you start with the words right and yeah. and it's like hold on you know that provides you know that communicates something to students, like yeah, it's different,
0: right? And and you can use you can use that word wall in a different way, right? So sure. you can say like, oh, here are words that we've started to use. Let's put them up on the board or up on our word wall and capture that um, and revisit it over time, so that you can say, oh, that thing that we were calling grabam, it actually turns out that's gravitational potential energy. So we're gonna call it that now because we know that it that's what it is. Um but yeah, I mean kabam kabam. Grubam. Grubam, okay yeah because okay, it's gravitational. All right. Nice. Gra- I like Gra- it. Uh, uh, it's right. it, yeah, like it's, it. it's from a unit. It's from a thing. But but sure. the point is like that idea of um yeah language sh- we're we're trying to think about the way language develops in in normal world, right? Which is that First, you have a concept for something, and and then you work out the concept together, and eventually that leads to a name for it. That's how science works. That's how language works, right? You know, photosynthesis, you don't go right to photosynthesis. First, you have to try and understand all sorts of problems that are underlying, and then you're like, oh, you know what? These plants are taking in light and using that light energy to produce their own food. I wonder how we can talk about that. Well, they're synthesizing, they're creating, you know, and then you end up with photosynthesis as a way of characterizing that. But you don't start with photosynthesis. Um, Because then it just becomes like just a vocabulary lesson. That's all. And And science is... It and science is more than that, that way, right? It, it's not the way the, the process works. So right. you're circumventing the whole process and then assuming by doing that, you're saving kids the effort of all that process, not understanding that the process is what makes it meaningful. So just giving them the word doesn't help them understand anything. So yeah, yeah. it's really, um, yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. All right. So Joyce, well do yeah, did you,
0: did you did you want to do like the Ollie summary or are we good?
1: Well you, you want to do the Scott summary? You
0: well, know? I don't know. I feel like uh. I feel like it's been a tradition that you do it, but um but okay, I'll do a fast the summary. Tra-
1: <laughs> it's it's a tradition. I didn't know it was a tradition.
0: Oh uh, yeah, I think you said something. You a couple episodes ago. You're like, usually I do this thing where we transition it to the but maybe right. not. You All go right. ahead. You go ahead. You go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You go. Go yourself. You go yourself. It's fine. Um. No. I mean, these are all themes we talked about. Yeah. Sure. Just get to know your kids that treat, treat your kids and their ideas as contrib- positive contributions to your classroom community. Um, That's like 90% of the battle. Yeah. Um, there's lots of other things in there, but, you know, treat the, you know, treat kids like they're human beings and they, they deserve respect and they have good ideas that can be useful to you turns out that's just good teaching. So, yeah,
1: I just love right. the idea of asset based teaching. I just love that. Like the way that's framed, I just love it, yeah. you know, and to think about like, I mean, it wasn't really something that, you know, folks were really talking about 30 years ago. Right. I mean, it's yeah. just so cool to see that that's how, you know, we yeah. as have transitioned as a, as a, as, as a field. It's awesome. It's just awesome. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because well, that would you know, have never been the way, you know, that my my father or your father or no. you know our our parents or anything. Like what we would have learned, you know? Well, and the that whole system had...
0: wasn't designed was designed no. antithetically to that, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, back to the two examples we gave, like drilling Italian out of your grandfather and and my father left sorry, your father. And yeah. uh and drilling left-handedness out of my grandfather, right?
1: Yeah. Like those weren't assets to the classroom. They were just like things we had to like, yeah. you know. Extricate, get yeah. it out of the, get they it out were, of here. They were
0: misconceptions. They were right. bad, right? right? They were, they were, yeah, yeah. All right, All right so but we're not talking about that. You're about to talk about a joy, so get I, after
1: it. Yeah, so I, you know, it is Academy Award season, and so I've been working through movies, and uh, I this is a hard one to say as a joy. It's, it's not a, it's. It, I would just say it's, it's been thought provoking. I enjoyed it, but it's dark. Mm.
0: You, you do have you do have a dark streak to you though. Uh, I do. In terms I do. Of the media you consume you do like you often like sort of sad uh, things.
1: Well, I like things that make me experience emotions, and yeah. sometimes those emotions aren't always positive, right? Yeah. And so um, this was this is called women talking. Oh yeah. Okay, so yeah. it's uh, set. It's set in a. uh, It doesn't say it's an an Amish community, but that's the kind of feel I get because you know, working and living in central Pennsylvania, we we encounter a lot of Amish folk. Um, So it's it's definitely something that is that kind of vein of a you know a uh, a religious community that has kind of pulled away from you know the rest of the world, and Mm -hmm. um, they live pretty a cloistered life, and so um, through some I don't want to give too much away from it. Um, A group of women have decided that they need to leave the colony. And um, for a variety of reasons, which you'll find out if you watch the movie. Um, And so this, these two families of women come together in a hayloft to discuss what the, all of the women in the community are going to do. And so it's kind of got this feel of like, 12 Angry Men, you know, that movie where they're like mm-hmm. trying to decide, you know, the fate of this person, whether the person's guilty or innocent, and they debate and discuss, and, you know, it's like, at at times you think they're going to definitely go guilty. At times they're definitely going to go not guilty. Well, that's kind of this movie they're in a hayloft and you know, there's this group of, of women young and old, and they're making this decision of what's going to be the fate of the women in this community. And at times you're just like, are they going to decide this? Are they going to decide this? And they're really having some high level conversations about power and safety and agency. And like, it is so yeah, it it it's emotionally wrecking um because these these women mo- most of them can't read and can't write because of the nature of the community they they've grown up in um and yeah, it's just it is really and faith faith mm-hmm. is a a big theme in this too and what it means to be faithful and what it means to forgive. Um yeah, it is so powerful. It is it's it's not an easy watch. By any shape of uh, the imagination. But there are some like tremendous actors in this. Francis McDormand, Jesse Buckley, you know, just to name a couple. There's a ton. Like I think uh, uh, one of the Mara's in it. I think Rooney Rooney Mara's in it. Yeah, it's just, you know, chock full of amazing actresses. And mm. and it's like awesome. It is so good. Yeah. But it's nice. it's like not joyful. It's... I mean, I guess, I don't know. The ending might be joyful, you know? Yeah. I don't know. You'll have to see. Check it out, you know? <laughs> Check
0: it out. Might yeah. might be, doesn't sound like it is, but okay.
1: Uh, uh, so women, women talking.
0: Okay. So um, I have one that it turns out, um, I think has some connections to our topic today in some regards. So this is a book I just read um, called The Mountain in the Sea, and it's by Ray Naylor. Um, it's... He doesn't like science fiction as a term, but it is speculative fiction. It is future set. It is in the United or it is in our world on earth in, in the future. Um, and the basic premise of the book, there's lots of pieces to it. Um, is that is about the discovery of a, uh, a new species on earth that it has culture. And in this case, it's octopuses. So um, octopuses are one of the smartest uh, creatures on earth. Um, And it's, it talks about how, well, it's a deeply sciency book. So Ray Naylor really did his science here. Um, But it's, it's a fascinating book because it talks about octopuses, obviously, and them, Uh, a lot. But also in this story in the future, there is this AI that has been created that's in the form of a person. So an Android, basically, um, that was created by this company. And after it was created, gets basically banned because people are so freaked out by the fact that this, this Android has you know co- quote unquote consciousness so a lot of the book is sort of an exploration of what consciousness is and are octopuses conscious is this android conscious is and um it's just it's a fascinating book and i think really well written it's really um interesting and it has a lot of ai stuff which is sort of hot right now uh, absolutely and yeah. octopuses are sort of hot right now too but uh fascinating um you know there's a bunch of Environmental um pieces to it, um, but one of the most fascinating ideas which I have heard about before but hadn't really thought deeply about I don't think until this book is the idea of umwalt, which is um what what it means is that and this is what's related to what we've been talking about is that the world as it is experienced by an organism, so what that means is human beings for example and people probably know this are very visual creatures, right? So we tend to think of things in visual terms largely. Um, but the point one of the points of this book is is that 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 hampers us in our ability to understand the experiences of other organisms. So my dog is very scent organized. I have no idea how they perceive the world, like what that looks like to them and again even what i just said what it looks like to them how they experience their environment and then if you think about organisms that live in like deep ocean or something and they their their senses are are basically chemical sensors of the water or you know so so this idea of like we have such a limited notion of what experience means because of the way that we bring um information into our brains to to make to do our thinking and and experiencing that it's 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 very difficult for us to understand and then given that it makes it very difficult to communicate so this is like in some levels an extreme version of what we've been talking about right like octopuses have a distributed nervous system so they're their brain is basically all throughout their body so what does that mean how do, how do they experience the world and then given that how how do we try to communicate with this species if they have language and culture how do we how do we bridge that gap so it's, it's what's a, the word it's umwelt 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 sorry u m w e l t umwelt um so uh yeah wow Yeah,
1: I I love that word. Yeah, me too. I think think it's pretty cool. Yeah, Um, I gotta think about that.
0: Yeah, it's an extreme version of what we've been talking about. But this, you know, this idea that like everybody's experience is unique. Well, this extends that even a, a layer further, which is to say, if people have different sense experiences, or if organisms have different sense experiences, then it's very difficult to even imagine how the world, how they, how the See, I can't even do it. Visualize right. like how it appears, sure. like how how they navigate the world. And, and, uh, and so it's, you know, it's, I can't even think of metaphors for what it would look like to not see. Right. And not just in a, in the blind human sense, but in the sense of like your whole system is based on an entirely different way of bringing in sensory data and, and, or, and figuring it out. But, it's so like, here's, here this It's is, really cool.
1: So I just Googled it and there's like something called umwalt theory, which oh says my. that the mind and the world are inseparable because it is the mind that interprets the world for the organism. And I'm just like, yeah, whoa. Right. right. That's some that that's some heavy stuff that we should just leave that sit there for right. our, our listeners. If they made it this far, that's a little nugget of of joy that they got at the end. Something to yeah. think about as they're like going through their their week yeah but
0: if you want to think about it in the context of a novel that's pretty easy to read um you know the the mountain in the sea is is a i think a good one um to do that with but it it may be, uh you know I haven't looked at reviews of the book, so I don't know how it falls compared to what other people think but for me, it was right in my wheelhouse in a lot of ways, talking about what is consciousness, what does it mean to communicate? Um, with other people or other organisms um, and how do you do that? What are the complexities of that? I mean, that's all stuff that's right in my wheelhouse. So um, absolutely. Cool. All right. Cool all right.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, yeah. yes, yeah. that is awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah. Cause it's, it's like, it, it's a
0: lot to think about, but it's, it it's a cool notion, right? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. I like it. All right. All right. Well, will well, catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.